Okay, moving along. Let's now talk about mutual funds and exchange traded funds or ETFs in part four of my multi-part intro to investing series in this, the 60th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, Social Security, Medicare, Portfolio Withdrawal Strategies, Annuities, Estate Planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you, as always, for listening. Today, we march on with the multi-part series about intro to investing. Today is the fourth episode in this series out of, uh, I do not yet know how many episodes this will be. It's going to be at least five, likely six, maybe seven but I haven't quite uh, gotten that far to figure out what exactly I want to do with the, uh, what other things I want to wrap up and talk about. So anyway, today is uh, again, part four of this multi-part episode. Today will be all about mutual funds and exchange traded funds, otherwise known as ETFs would be the acronym. So let's get into it without, uh, well, first I, I should give the disclaimer here. As always, nothing said or referenced or mentioned in this podcast is to be misconstrued as any sort of specific guy, uh, recommendations or advice to, to buy or sell or hold any particular investment or investments. It is purely helpful hunts and education and general guidance. Uh, so, so definitely keep that in mind. If I, if I do happen to mention a specific security or investment by name, again, it is definitely not a recommendation to do anything or not do anything with it. It's just simply uh, me making reference to try to give an example. And uh, not that I talk about results or performance much, but if I do happen to by, um, even if unintentionally, keep in mind the the adage, the disclaimer that past performance is no guarantee of future results. All right, marching on. Mutual funds and exchange traded funds or ETFs, what are they? Uh, in a nutshell, and I'll walk through this a little more, it's a pooled investment vehicle where you and a bunch of other investors all basically put your money into a big fat pot. That pot is used to buy a bunch of other investments, such as a bunch of individual stocks, a bunch of individual bonds, maybe some commodity holdings, you know, uh, precious metals, grains, whatever, whatever it may be, real estate, perhaps. And then you and all the people that pulled up your money all collectively own a prorated slice of that pot and everything it owns. So you, you might be able to see where, uh, you know, the benefit is in this basic example. Let's assume you only have $1,000 to invest and you wanna buy a whole bunch of stocks because you wanna have diversity. You don't wanna invest all your money in just one company in case that company goes bust, like we talked about in the stock episode. There's potentially a lot of risk, a lot of concentration risk. If you invest in just one uh, company, one stock, if that stock ends up being great, good for you. If that stock ends up being a fraud or going bust, you know, becoming bankrupt, not good for you. You can lose it all. So you generally want some, some level of diversity, which simply means spreading around your money into different investments, in this case, different stocks, if you're investing in stocks. So if you only have $1,000, you're going to be limited how many stocks you can buy. Let's assume you wanted to buy a share of, uh, just making this up, Amazon. It's trading for, I don't know, somewhere close to $200, a little less than that you know, per share. So you can buy five shares of Amazon, let's say, and that's it. There, there goes your $1,000. Now, that's not very diverse. All you have is Amazon. So let's say, okay, I'll just buy one share of Amazon. Let's just assume that's $200. That leaves you now with $800 left to invest in whatever else. Let's say you want to buy some uh, General Electric and some IBM and some American Airlines and whatever. Let's just assume each of these stocks, I'm just completely making this up, but let's assume all those other stocks uh, are, are also $200 a share. 
you can only buy five shares in total with your $1,000, which is going to limit you to at most having five different companies. That's still not very diverse. I mean, it's more diverse than having one, but it's not nearly as diverse as having dozens or hundreds or thousands. With only $1,000 to invest, you're kind of limited. You, know, you simply can't buy a lot of individual securities because you don't have a lot of money. Um, now, th there could be some brokers or custodians that will allow you to buy things in fractional share amounts. So instead of having to buy one whole share of Amazon and General Electric and IBM, they may let you buy a partial share. You know, instead of uh, one full share, you can buy $20 worth, which is going to be, you know, whatever, 0.1 of a share. Uh, now, that, that's possible, but many, many brokers and custodians don't allow that. You have to buy full shares only. So uh, what if you want to take your $1,000 and you want to somehow get it into a diversified portfolio of a whole bunch of stocks? You can't do it if you buy stocks individually. So enter uh, mutual funds or exchange traded funds. You, and let's just assume there's a million other people that all have only $1,000 to invest. You all have the same problem. You want to get a diversified portfolio, but you can't do it with a thousand bucks. So you and these million other folks all throw your $1,000 into a pot. That's going to be what? That's going to be a billion dollars, you know, a million people times a thousand each. That's a billion dollars. There's now a, a big fat pot that has $1 billion in it. That pot now has a lot of, of pooled up collective buying power. A billion dollars can buy a lot of stocks. It can definitely buy you diversified portfolio of dozens or hundreds or even thousands of stocks. So now this billion dollar pot can go out and buy 2000 different stocks or a thousand or 50 or you know whatever it might be. You now, you own a $1,000 interest in this billion dollar pot and you own a, a little prorated slice of everything the pot owns. If the pot owns a hundred different stocks, you indirectly own a hundred different stocks. Now, technically you only own a share or a stock in that pot in that pool, but the the economics of that pot in that pool is such that it owns a thousand different shares and, and, and it passes through all those economics to you, the holder of that pot of, uh, of investments. So whatever those hundred stocks do in that big fat pot, you know, whatever dividends they pay, whatever price gains or losses they have, that all passes through to you in your thousand dollar investment in that pool, in that pot. Make sense? That's it at a super high level. That's that's what mutual funds and ETFs are in concept. It's nothing more than a pooled investment vehicle where, again, pooling means all the various different investors put all their money into a pot. That pot goes out and buys a bunch of stocks, a bunch of bonds, a bunch of real estate, a bunch of commodities. And then all the fund holders, the pool holders or owners own a, a, a slice of it. So, so that, that's it in a super, super high level. Let's now talk about the uh, differences of, of each. And this is where it'll really sort of come to light. And at the end, I'll wrap with sort of uh, which one's better. Spoiler alert, neither is necessarily better. It really all depends what you want or need or are looking for in a pooled investment vehicle. That that will dictate whether you want something, uh, uh, you know, mutual fund or an exchange traded fund. Before that, I, I just want to say um, mutual funds and, and ETFs aren't by themselves investments. Well, I mean, I guess they are. But for, for example, if, if someone says, well, how do you invest or what are you invested in? You say, I don't know, I'm invested in mutual funds and, and they're risky, right? Like mutual fund isn't that by itself. Uh, it doesn't tell you anything about the ultimate risk or, or what you own. It's just simply a type of way in which you, you own things, basically. Sort of like in, in a, a part one of the series where I talked about the different account types. You know, if someone says, what do you invest in? And they go, I have a 401k. Uh, it's risky or it's not risky. Like the 401k doesn't mean anything. That's just a bucket that holds uh, underlying investments. In that sense, mutual funds and ETFs are kind of similar. Like mutual funds aren't inherently risky, 
they're not inherently safe, neither are ETFs. It all depends what that mutual fund or ETF invests in. It's an underlying pool of investments that dictates how risky is it or, or, or isn't it. So uh, let, let's go through the um, differences and this will help bring it all to life. So mutual funds, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna break this down. I got five different, um, uh, I don't know, considerations, if you will. And I'll talk about how each consideration is similar or different between mutual funds and ETFs. So mutual funds, in terms of the investment strategies they can employ, can be either active or passive. I think I touched about touched on this in the stock episode. I don't recall at this point, but active means there are fund managers, or you know, people, living, breathing people, who oversee the fund, oversee the pot of money, and they invest it in some specific strategy. That's what's called actively managed, where basically they are sifting through. Let's assume it's a stock fund, uh, and it's a uh, large cap. Um, I don't know, industrials fund. So large cap, if you recall from the stock episode, means the market capitalization or total size of the publicly traded company is, is large. Uh, and industrials means what sectors it's in. So it's a, a bunch of large companies who are in the industrial sector where they make equipment and machinery, for example, for industrial use. An actively managed large cap industrial stock fund would be Portfolio managers of the fund go out and sift through the various large cap industrial stocks out there and try to find and separate the winners from the losers, or I should say who they think will be the winners from who they think will be the losers going forward. And they do that by looking at research and hopping on calls with the company's management, you know, stock uh, company's management to try to get as much info as they could and, and an insight and try to find an edge in their knowledge. They'll look at third party research reports. They'll look at uh, things like price to earnings ratios, like we talked about, to look at all sorts of fundamental metrics and analysis, and they will come up with a decision, with a thesis, with an opinion. They'll say, okay, I think company ABC is going to do a lot better than company XYZ within the large cap industrial stock space. Therefore, I'm going to buy company ABC. I'm not going to buy company XYZ and uh, vice versa, you know, or not vice versa, but you know, as time, let's say they invest in company ABC over time, Let's assume the, the fundamental strength of company ABC sours for whatever reason, because some product that they make has, uh, has fallen out of favor or you know, there's less demand for it for whatever reason. That may change the portfolio manager's view such that they now no longer think it's, it's good to hold company ABC, so they're going to sell it. And that, that happens you know, throughout the, the life of the fund. Um, stocks will come, stocks will go based on the portfolio manager's hands-on research and analysis and opinions about what companies they think are good, what company they think are bad and when. So, so they'll get in and get out of stocks along the way based on you know their views of what, what they think is good or versus bad investments. That's active or an active strategy or, or active uh, portfolio management versus passive. Passive is the, the holdings of the fund simply seek to replicate the uh, some sort of underlying index. The most common in the US at least is the S&P 500, which we talked about in the stock episode. It's simply the 500 uh, largest publicly traded companies that, that trade on US stock exchanges is, is the way to put it. Now, if there's a fund that, uh, a mutual fund that seeks to um, invest in the stocks of the S&P 500, you don't really need someone to do research and analysis of the underlying companies and try to pick which ones they think are good or bad. The fund by design, by its mandate, you know, it's, its rules of what it's supposed to do, it is simply it invests in the 500 stocks of the S&P 500, period. You know, no more, no less. 
It's supposed to invest in the same allocations of each of the 500 as uh, the companies that are actually weighted in the S&P 500 index. So that's passive. Now, that's not to say that uh, certain companies and stocks don't come and go out of that fund. For example, the S&P 500 index occasionally does add and, and uh, uh, kick out companies from that five that, that reference of 500 companies. So as, as the underlying S&P 500 rejiggers its constituents, the fund that seeks to replicate the S&P 500 will similarly rejigger its constituents in the fund, but it's still passive. Again, it's, it's there's someone not trying to actively do better than the index or, or separate winners from losers. They just simply invest in the index. So that's active and passive. You can have mutual funds that uh, invest in either you know active strategies or passive strategies versus ETFs or exchange traded funds historically and currently predominantly just passive, meaning the funds just seek to uh, invest in uh, stocks or bonds or whatever that, that that replicate the constituents of a given index, like the S&P 500, like the Dow Jones uh, Industrial Average, like the NASDAQ Stock Index. All these uh, indices were referenced in the, in the stock episode a couple episodes ago. Now, there are a few actively managed uh, ETFs where the fund manager does seek to pick specific companies that he or she thinks are going to do better than, you know, some benchmark or, or some other standard, but they're the exception, not the norm. There's a growing number of them, but by and large, ETFs are still predominantly uh, passive strategies, such as, you know, a fund that seeks to replicate the holdings and the returns of the S&P 500. So those are investment strategies. Fees. What's the difference in fees between mutual funds and ETFs? Well, in mutual funds, there's potentially a few different types of fees. One is what's called a sales load, which is functionally just a commission. Uh, thankfully, as the markets have progressed and matured, there are less and less mutual funds that still have commissions associated with them, but some still do nonetheless. Uh, a common one is there'll be a front end load, which means when you put money into the mutual fund, let's just assume there's a 5% load. It means 5% is shaved right off the top and is used to pay uh, as a commission to the person who sold it to you. So quick example, you put $100,000 into a mutual fund that has a 5% upfront load, only $95,000 actually gets invested into the fund, 5,000 of your 100,000 is shaved off, paid as a commission to, uh, to the broker who sold it to you. There's also some funds that have back end sales loads or redemption loads. You don't pay the commission when you enter the fund, you instead pay it on the way out. You know, it'll be 5%, let's say, on the back end, whenever you redeem out, you have to shave off 5% of whatever the value is at the time, and that goes to pay a commission. Uh, so those are sales loads. There's management fees. That's simply an ongoing expense you have to pay for the day-to-day -day running of, of the fund, like the portfolio managers who, who are the ones in an active managed fund who sit there and go through the research and analyze companies and make decisions of what to buy or sell and when they all have to get paid, rightfully so. They get paid out of a management fee. Now, management fee is expressed as a uh, expense ratio, which is a percentage, and that's the amount of fee deducted every year from the value of your account. So let's just assume a mutual fund has a 1% uh, management fee. That means every year, 1% of the value of your holding, the value of your ownership in the fund, will be shaved off and used to, to go to the company to pay fees, which in turn go to pay you know the managers who, who run it. There's also something called a 12B1 fee in, in, in some, not all, but some mutual funds. This one's kind of squirrely, it's kind of hidden. It's, it's like one of the industry's uh, worst kept secrets. 12B1 fees, they do a lot of things, but 
It's ultimately a fee that's used to, uh, in effect, compensate the fund company, you know, the, the company that created and, and sells the fund. It's used to compensate them for marketing and selling the fund. Uh, it sounds kind of circular. So for example, and this is also expressed as a percentage, it may be, I'm just making this up, you know, 0.10% per year. So if you buy a mutual fund that has a 0.10% 12B1 fee, every year, 0.10% of the value of what you have in that fund is, is taken out and used to pay the company. And it's used to pay the company for their expenses and marketing to you and people like you. So basically, like you're ultimately paying the company's expense for them advertising and selling the fund to you, if you want to think about it that way. Um, there's also, there's a little more technical, but there's all depending on the firm you work with or an advisor, if you have an advisor, he or she or the firm they work for may get some sort of back end kickbacks or compensation from the fund companies uh, carved out from the 12B1 fees the company makes. So for example, you buy a mutual, an advisor recommends to you mutual fund ABC. And let's say mutual fund ABC has a 0.1% uh, 12B1 fee. Maybe the fund company that manages fund ABC has an arrangement with the advisor who recommended you into the fund that half that 12B1 fee will be split, where the fund management company keeps half of that 0.1%. And the advisor who recommended you buy the fund gets the other half of that uh, 0.1%. So you always have to ask if, if, if when someone's recommending a mutual fund to you, are there 12B1 fees in it? And if so, uh, what's your total compensation or your firm's compensation for recommending this fund to me? Is there a sales load up front? Are you sharing in part of the 12B1 fee, et cetera? Mutual funds could also have what's called other expenses. Now, this is sort of a catch-all, could mean a lot of things, whereas a management fee I talked about is usually earmarked specifically to pay the fund managers who are running the fund. Other things, uh, I'm sorry, other expenses could be just random like administrative fees, you know, the paperwork fees of sending you statements and the general administration of record keeping and stuff like that. That'll also be expressed as a uh, percentage um, that, that you pay. Now, the sales load will be its own standalone fee. You know, it'll be 5% or whatever it might be on the front end, on the back end. The management fee, the 12B1 fee, and the other expense fee are usually wrapped up into a total expense ratio. So let's just assume the total expense ratio is 1%. Uh, that, that's that's a, that's a total amount scraped off your fund every year to pay these various expenses. Now, if you dig into it, you'll easily be able to find what's the split between management fees, 12B1 fees, and other fees. But for all intents and purposes, uh, your total cost, if you will, is the sales load if there is one, and then this ongoing total uh, expense ratio for the fund. So that's potential funds, uh, I'm sorry, potential expenses or, or fees in mutual funds as far as ETFs. Loosely similar structure in that they um, could often have management fees and the other expense fees where, again, they'll be expressed as a percentage and they will be a annual, um, uh, I'm drawing a blank, uh, ex ex um, expense ratio. So the difference between ETFs and mutual funds, there's not going to be any sort of sales load. You know, there's no commission that's stripped out from these like there could be with mutual funds. And there's also no 12B1 fees with ETFs as there could be with mutual funds. So that's fees. Trading, fundamentally different in how mutual funds and ETFs are bought and sold. With a mutual fund, you directly uh, buy or subscribe into them from the fund company that manages it and you want out. You similarly uh, directly redeem your interest in the fund from the uh, company that manages it. So let's give an example. Um, I'm just going to say Vanguard again. This is not a recommendation to use or not use Vanguard, but they're probably one of the more common, well-known 
uh, mutual fund companies. So you want to buy $10,000 of a, some particular Vanguard mutual fund. The way you ultimately buy that is you uh, send $10,000 to Vanguard. You say, hey, I want this $10,000 to go into this particular fund. They say, okay. They take in your money. They record that you now are an owner of $10,000 or you just bought $10,000 worth of this fund. And they notify you, okay, cool. You now own $10,000 worth of fund, you know, A, B, C, D, E, or whatever it might be, whatever the ticker is. Well, ticker is going to end in X, but whatever, neither here nor there. Um, the you, you can buy mutual funds through a third-party broker or custodian. So let's just assume you have a brokerage account at Charles Schwab. Again, not a recommendation to use them or not, just first one that came to mind. You have a brokerage account at Charles Schwab and you want to buy a Vanguard mutual fund within that brokerage account. You can do that. So you go to Schwab, you, you, know, you log in or you call them or whatever way you go about doing this, but usually easiest to do it online through the Schwab website, for example. And you say, okay, I have $10,000 in my Schwab brokerage account. I want to use it to buy this particular Vanguard mutual fund. You're still ultimately buying it directly from Vanguard. What happens is Schwab is just acting as a middle person and, and doing that intermediate step for you. So Schwab takes your $10,000. Schwab turns around and sends it to Vanguard and says, hey, Vanguard, this client wants to buy $10,000 of this particular fund, uh, et cetera. Vanguard then tells Schwab, okay, cool. They, they own $10,000 worth. Schwab tells you by evidencing that uh, you know ownership of $10,000 of that fund in your Schwab brokerage account, bing, bang, boom, all done. So that that's um, at a high level how you buy. And when you redeem or sell, you do the same thing. If you bought direct from Vanguard, you would call up or go on the Vanguard website, most likely, and say, hey, I have you know now $15,000 of this, of this Vanguard mutual fund. I want out. You put in your what's called redemption request and Vanguard will redeem you out, whatever the uh, you know the value is. I'll touch more on the value in a bit. Um, they redeem you out. You know, Vanguard sends you back this $15,000. You now no longer own this $15,000 worth of fund. You get the 15,000 cash done. You go your separate ways. Similarly, if you own the fund through a brokerage account, as opposed to direct from Vanguard, such as going back to our other example, you own this fund in a Schwab brokerage account. You would log on to Schwab to say, hey, sell this $15,000 of Vanguard fund. Uh, Schwab then turns around and, and notifies Vanguard, hey, this this fund owner gave us a redemption request to sell all of its $15,000 of this fund. Vanguard says, okay, cool. Vanguard will send Schwab the $15,000. Schwab puts that in your account to you know liquidate you out from that fund uh, holding. And just like that, you, you no longer own your... Um, uh, $15,000 of the Vanguard mutual fund. So ultimately it gets you to the same spot, whether you buy directly from Vanguard or buy through a third-party brokerage like Schwab, like TD, like Fidelity, like E-Trade, doesn't matter. It, it all ultimately ends up going to and from the underlying fund company. In this case, uh, Vanguard is, is our example. So that's mutual funds, how you, how you buy and sell or you know subscribe and redeem technically is what you do. ETFs, fundamentally very different. Uh, ETFs are bought and sold just like stocks are. And if you recall the stock episode from a couple episodes back, you have to have some sort of investment account at a broker or custodian to do that. Um, so you would, uh, let's again, assume you have a Charles Schwab uh, brokerage account. You want to buy a certain ETF. Let's just assume it's a Vanguard ETF. You want to buy it. You would log into your Schwab account. You would say, hey, you know, buy me $10,000 of this particular ETF. Click buy. You now own it. Schwab buys that for you as if, you know, it's the same process as if you you log in and tell Schwab to buy me $10,000 of stock XYZ. 
you instead say buy buy me ten thousand dollars of ETF, you know, uh, LMNO, you know, whatever the ticker is, doesn't matter. Um, similarly, when when you want out of that ETF, you sell it. You sell it through your brokerage account, just like you would have selling a stock. You know, you have ten thousand dollars worth of a certain ETF in your account. You no longer want it. You log into Schwab. You go to their trading portal. You say, okay, sell all you know ten thousand dollars worth of this ETF. And boom, Schwab sells it. You, you get the cash proceeds. You're out of that position. Done. Um, big difference with, um, before I get, before I get the valuation, let's talk about fees. So when you, when you buy or sell or subscribe or redeem to a mutual fund direct from the fund company, they almost certainly won't charge you any sort of trading fee to buy or sell you know, and technically subscribe or redeem, uh, to or from that mutual fund. But if you buy the mutual fund through a third-party broker or custodian, like again, the example of buying a Vanguard fund within your Charles Schwab brokerage account, uh, Schwab or whoever the broker is, will generally uh, charge you some sort of trading fee or commission to do that. And it all depends how much it is, what place, but assume anywhere from 20 bucks to, to maybe 50 at the high end, again, depending on the particular fund you're buying, depending on the custodian or the broker you're using, it could be different. But, you know, 20, 30 bucks, maybe 40 bucks is, is probably within the realm of uh, what to expect. And, and that's simply to compensate the, um, the, the broker doing the work for you. Because, again, they're just acting as a middle person. Whereas if you went direct to Vanguard to buy and sell, you're doing the work of Vanguard. If you buy or sell this Vanguard fund through Schwab, Schwab's going to charge you for their time and administrative process in, in being involved as the middle person. And, again, it's typically 20 to 40 bucks, let's say, uh, per trade every time you want to buy and sell a mutual fund through a third-party brokerage account. Now, some brokers have a list of no transaction fee funds, meaning they have some sort of special relationship with a certain fund company. Um, th there's thousands of mutual funds out there. So, you know, if you can't find one on the uh, your broker's no, no fee trade list, maybe try looking to a different fund family or, or whatever. But for what it's worth, generally, I think Vanguard is usually going to be are usually going to have uh, trading commissions if you buy them through a third-party broker. I don't think they uh, are going to be on any broker's no transaction fee list, but but I can be wrong. Again, if you buy direct from Vanguard, there's no fee, but if you buy through a brokerage, there there will be. Um, as far as fees for buying and selling ETFs, they they functionally are, are treated just like stocks. Since the last few years, none of the major retail brokers slash custodians uh, have... Um, uh, almost all of them have since dropped the trading fees and commissions for buying or selling stocks. That applies just the same to ETFs. If you buy or sell an ETF at any of the major custodians, Fidelity, Schwab, TD, Vanguard, E-Trade, uh, there's not a, a per trade fee to buy or sell ETFs in your account. Now, that's if you buy like through their website or through whatever their trading portal is. If you call up, someone there and, and talk to a real life person that will almost certainly charge you something. Maybe it's 30 bucks, maybe it's 50 bucks. I don't know. It could be less, could be more. But, um, you know, if you're buying just through their website or whatever, whether you buy or sell stocks or ETFs, chances are there's not going to be an, uh, an outright, you know, per trade fee. It used to be like five bucks a trade, 10 bucks a trade. A while ago, it was much, it was, it was, you know, tens of dollars per trade. But over the last 10, 20 years, it was, you know, more like five bucks, 10 bucks a trade. Now it's zero for, for most stocks and ETFs in most places. So that, that's the uh, difference in trading processes between mutual funds and ETFs. Now let's talk about valuation and pricing. So 
when you um, buy or sell, or I should say subscribe or redeem from a mutual fund, it's always transacted at the day's closing NAV, which stands for net asset value. Remember I said these things are all just big pots of money that own, all the money's pooled up and that money's used to buy a whole various collection of individual stocks, bonds, real estate, whatever. The net asset value is simply, it's, it's calculated once per day at the end of the day, and it simply adds up all of the underlying investments held by the fund. It looks at the price of all those things times the number of shares that the fund owns. It adds all that up and subtracts any um, liabilities it may have. That's its net asset value. And if, if the, you know, the pot, the entirety of the fund will have a cumulative net asset value, you then use that to figure out what the net asset value is per share the fund owns. So remember, you're just, you just own a small slice of that, of that bigger pot. You're going to have a certain number of shares in that pot. And a certain number of shares is out of a total number of shares of the whole pot. So net asset value per share is simply the value of the entirety of the fund's net assets. Again, everything it owns minus any debts it has. Divide that by the total number of shares outstanding. That's the net asset value per share. So if you put in an order to buy or sell out of mutual funds any given day, your order is going to be transacted after the end of the day, after that day's net asset value per share is calculated. So, so you can't buy or sell mutual funds intraday. You can put the orders in at any time during the trading day, but your, your order to buy or sell won't be executed until after the day is over and that day's net asset value is calculated, that's the price at which you will ultimately buy or sell your uh, interest in your mutual fund. So again, it's only calculated once per day at the end of the day. That's the price you always transact mutual fund uh, trades at. Very different with ETFs. ETFs, again, remember I said they, they're, they're bought and sold like stocks. Um, with that said, the price at which you buy or sell is simply a function of the market supply and demand. And you can buy or sell them intraday at any time, just like you can buy a stock any second throughout the trading day where the trading day starts, at least for stocks, it's 9.30 a.m. Eastern to 4 p.m. Eastern is the uh, uh, stock market hours. There's also after hours and before hour sessions, but let's just leave it at uh, you know, the normal hours of 9.30 to 4 p.m. Uh, Eastern. You, you can buy or sell stock anytime throughout that, that time period. Same thing with ETFs. You can put in your order anytime and you can have it automatically or, or you know, basically instantaneously executed, just like with stocks. So you can look at, uh, I don't know, Yahoo Finance or any other sort of stock quote uh, source you may have, look at what the price of the ETF is currently. Now the price will be on a bit of a delay, but you know, nonetheless, it'll be more or less current. And you can say, okay, I wanna, I wanna buy this ETF at this price. You can go, you can log into your brokerage account. You can say, okay, buy me now, you know, 10 shares, 20 shares, whatever of this particular ETF, you hit, you hit submit. And your trade will be executed, you know, within seconds, you know, if not faster than that, at whatever the current price is. Now, like with stocks, I mentioned there's a bid ask spread. The price at which you buy is going to be X. The price at which you sell is going to be Y. And those prices won't be the same because remember, there's going to be some sort of broker or market maker or middle person in there where they are buying and selling, and they need to make a little spread or make a little money on it. So the price at which they sell to you will be slightly higher than the price at which they'd buy from you. And they net themselves that difference. So you on the other end, selling and or buying, the prices aren't gonna be the same. So if, if you buy a share of an ETF right now for let's just say $100 exactly, and you instantly turn around and sell it, you're gonna get a little less for it than what you just paid. 
Now that that difference is is kept by you know the market maker or the middle person who, who's ultimately executing the trades for you um, at your loss. So it not to make it sound underhanded or dirty, it's just simply the way the, the markets work. The, the the middle people, the intermediaries, need to get compensated somehow. They get compensated by the bid ask spread, where again bid is uh, the price at which this, these middle people buy, and the ask is the price at which the middle people sell. So with ETFs. Um, you can buy or sell them intraday. The prices can and will move intraday. And the uh, there's going to be some bid-ask spread, um, you know, noise or difference uh, d when you sell. Now, don't um, different ETFs have different levels or, or different widths of bid-ask spread. All else equal, the, the larger, the more liquid, the more um, the more people trading, a certain ETF, the smaller the bid ask spread will be, and vice versa. The smaller, the less liquid, the uh, less in demand a certain ETF is, the wider its bid ask spread will be. This is one of the reasons why, if you do invest in ETFs, it's usually better to try to stick to the larger, more liquid uh, ones with with more active market participants because the bid ask spreads will, will be tiny, you know, negligible, versus the bid ask spreads can be pretty large if you're if you're uh, trying to buy and sell some off the beaten path ETF. Um, if you're a buy and hold investor, not to say these spreads don't matter, but they're going to be rounding errors in the grand scheme of things. Versus if you're day trading in and out of ETFs all day long, these bid ass, just like stocks for that matter, these bid ass spreads will start to eat up, uh, will start to add up, and they will eat into your overall economics. But for the you know the, the average buy and hold investor who's only buying or rebalancing, you know, once a quarter, a few times a year, these bid ass spreads are going to be tiny. Don't don't let them stop you from uh, you know, from doing trades or rebalances every now and again, just you know, try to not day trade and get in and get out quickly because these these bid ask spread losses will uh, will add up. So, with mutual funds, you know, the upside in terms of valuation and pricing is that there is no bid ask spread. You will get whatever the net asset value is, but the downside is you you don't know what it's going to be. You can only trade it um, regardless when in the day you put your order in. Your price isn't going to be executed. The trade is not going to be executed until after the end of the day. When the fund's net asset value is calculated, so again, the upside there is no bid ask spread. The downside is you can only execute at, at a price once a day. Versus ETFs, the upside is you can buy and sell them intraday, just like stocks. So more liquidity, you know, more control over the uh, the price at which you can buy and sell, as opposed to having to wait until the end of the day when the net asset value is calculated. But the downside is there will be some small, uh, hopefully small bid ask spread slippage that, that that may creep in. But again, for for uh, longer term buy and hold investors who are buying and selling large, liquid, well-trafficked ETFs, the bid-ask spread is, is, is negligible and, and ultimately going to be a you know, rounding error in the grand scheme of your financial picture. So the now I don't want to get too technical, but there's a reason why there's mutual funds and ETFs trade differently. When you buy or sell a mutual fund, you are directly, let's say you buy a mutual fund, you're you are putting new money into this pooled pot. Um, it's create, literally creating new shares that didn't exist prior to you putting the money in. And that, that money you put in goes and gets put to work, the fund manager uses it to go buy more stocks or whatever. And same thing when you redeem. There's a certain amount of shares currently outstanding in the fund. You wanna redeem out 10,000 bucks, you know, however many shares that equates to, the fund manager will literally uh, close out and in effect terminate however many shares those are, so they no longer cease, they no longer exist, you get cashed out. 
So the amount of shares outstanding does fluctuate any given day as people put money in, people take money out with, with a mutual fund. With an ETF, it's different. It's like a stock again in that there's an initial public offering. Remember, we talked about that in the stock episode. Um, when the fund is first created, investors who want to buy it pull up their money. There's an initial allocation and creation, an initial public offering of a, of a big pot of shares that's created, put out into the world. Those shares then trade amongst market participants, amongst buyers and sellers. So when you want to sell out of an ETF and you sell your shares through your brokerage account, those, those shares don't cease to exist. Someone else is buying them. Someone else in the secondary market is in effect buying those shares from you and vice versa when you buy them. When you go to buy ETF shares, uh, chances are there's not new shares actually getting created. You're just simply buying from someone else in the market who wants to sell them versus mutual funds. Anytime you buy or sell, there, there, there is actually the creation and destruction of uh, shares from, from circulation. So a little fun fact um, in case you're interested. And taxation. Let's talk about how mutual funds and ETFs are taxed. Now, there are you have a mutual fund whenever you sell it there could be a capital gain or capital loss just like with stocks and that's simply if you sell it at a price that's higher than the price you paid for it there'll be what's called a capital gain if you sell it at a price that's lower than the price you paid for it there'll be what's called a capital loss similar to stocks you know capital losses could uh, potentially reduce your tax bill for the year capital gains can add to your tax bill for the year if you held the shares more than 12 months from when you um from the time you sold them from when you bought them, it'll be a long-term capital gain and, and taxed at a lower rate federally. If you held it for 12 months or less from when you buy it to when you sell it, it'll be taxed as ordinary income, otherwise called a short-term capital gain, and uh, it's taxed at your normal uh, normal tax rates. Now, here, here's a sort of tricky technical thing about mutual funds. There's something called capital gain distributions. So I think you all get that whenever you sell a mutual fund, there's a potentially taxable event, whether you sell it at a gain or a loss. That that sort of makes sense, right? Well, keep in mind a mutual fund is nothing more than a, than a big pool of investments. Within that pool, the fund managers could be buying and selling stocks, bonds, whatever, throughout the course of the year. Even though you don't sell any of your shares in the fund, the fund itself is buying and selling its investments throughout the year. Now, by law, any um, capital gains the fund has from the portfolio manager selling things throughout the year, those gains have to be passed through to you and every other shareholder. So that could mean, um, you know, you bought 10,000 shares at the beginning of the year, you didn't sell any at all during the year, yet within the fund, a bunch of stocks were sold and those stocks were sold at gains. The amount of that gain, or I should say your prorated slice, your prorated ownership of the fund's gains will get passed through to you and you have to pay tax on it this year. So that could sting. Uh, th this was a big problem in uh, 2021. A lot of mutual funds had really large capital gain distributions from uh, uh, the, the fund selling a bunch of things within itself at, at realized you know, large gains. Those gains are passed through to you. Even though you didn't sell it, you get stiffed at the end of the year with this bill. You know, this Well, it'll show up in your 1099 brokerage statement at tax return time that says, hey, even though you didn't sell in this fund, you got, you know, whatever, $10,000 of long-term capital gains you have to pay tax on now. Surprise. So not um, pleasant when that happens. I don't want to get too into it. It's fairly technical. I, I've done videos on it on YouTube. I'll, uh, I'll uh, post a link to it in the notes here that walks through more and helps make more sense about this. Um, but anyway, just, just keep in mind that if you own mutual funds in a regular taxable brokerage account, you can be subject to capital gain distributions throughout the year. 
Now, these are much more common. These capital gain distributions are much more common in actively managed funds than they are in passive funds. Um, so just be aware of that. Now, notice I said if it's in a regular brokerage account, you have to uh, take notice of this because anything that happens in a regular brokerage account does have tax implications potentially. If you own mutual funds in a qualified account, like a traditional IRA or a Roth IRA, you don't have to worry about the, the present day tax impacts of this because there aren't present day tax impacts within qualified accounts like IRAs and Roth IRAs uh, when a fund passes through a capital gain distribution. So it's really only uh, regular taxable brokerage accounts where this is uh, potentially an issue to be aware of. With uh, exchange traded funds, the taxation is is the same with regards to when you actually sell some of the fund, just like with a stock. If you sell it at a gain, you're uh, you know that gain is taxable. If you sell it at a loss, that loss is uh, tax tax reducing. So so no different there. Now the um, uh, ETFs rarely, if ever pass-through capital gain distributions. There's a very technical reason for that. Well, one of the two reasons is that generally ETFs are um, passively managed, not actively managed, which means simply that there's less uh, trading and selling of positions within the fund in, in a passively managed strategy than there are in an actively managed strategy. So that's one potential reason. The other, which is, which is uh, definitely a little out there, is simply the way in which um, ETFs are able to, to redeem themselves. Uh, where am I going with this? So remember when I said with a mutual fund, if you want to redeem out, you tell a fund company, they actually like take shares out of, they, they, they destroy shares. They take shares out of circulation. Uh, if you have a really large holding in a mutual fund and you want out, the fund company is going to have to sell some of its uh, stocks and bonds that it owns to free up cash to send you out your distribution. That's one reason why there could be sales within the fund. And that's a reason why there could be capital gain distributions within the fund that are passed on to the remaining shareholders in the fund. With an ETF, when you want out, the the share, remember the shares typically don't get uh, destroyed, right? You're not, you're not giving them back and closing them out as a fund company. You're simply selling them. The shares still exist. You're just selling them to another buyer. So you don't have this concept of like the, the fund needs to sell some of its investments to free up cash to pay you out because you're simply getting paid out from someone else who's buying the shares from you, as opposed to the shares getting sort of ripped up and destroyed. Now, there, there are times when a fund, uh, when an ETF does actually need to take shares out of circulation. And, you know, let's say there's there's more sale requests than there are buy requests, then they may have to actually uh, destroy, if you will, or take shares out of circulation. Now, this is where there's a structural difference between mutual funds and ETFs that helps uh, explain and prevent ETFs from, from having capital gain distributions. When an ETF does need to take shares out of circulation, there's a process by which the creation and, and destruction of shares in an ETF is done through what's called authorized participants. It's big Wall Street banks. Um, when an ETF needs to take itself out of circulation, they don't. They technically don't need to sell positions that they own to, to cancel shares. They can just give some of those positions to, they can in effect transfer those positions to the authorized participants. In doing so, there's not actually a sale within the fund because they're not selling its positions, they're just transferring its positions. So kind of technical, there, there's some um, uh, legal and structural underpinning as to why that is, but just, just know that that's, that's the main reason why ETFs rarely, if ever, have capital gain distributions, whereas mutual funds um, much often do. Again, even if there are capital gain distributions in an ETF, it really only matters from a tax perspective. If you own them in a regular taxable brokerage account, 
if you own your ETFs in a in a qualified account, like an IRA or Roth IRA, it's a non-issue because you don't pay tax on it in the current year. Uh, I should also mention dividends. I forgot to mention dividends. Uh, with either mutual funds or ETFs, again, you just own prorated shares in a pot where a pot owns a bunch of individual stocks, let's say. As those stocks in that pot pay dividends, those dividends are passed through to you and all the other shareholders, again, based on your prorated slices of ownership. So all the dividends that get paid out and passed through, those are taxable to you in the year uh, you receive them. So if you own mutual funds or ETFs in a regular taxable brokerage account, the dividends that get paid out will be taxable to you in the year they're paid out. Uh, if you own them in a qualified account, like an IRA, Roth IRA, you don't have to worry about the current year taxation because again, there, there is no uh, present year taxation in, uh, in accounts like those. All right, so that's... Um, high level, the the uh, similarities and differences between mutual funds and ETFs. Now you may be wondering, well, okay, cool, but which one's better? That all depends. Uh, it all depends your reasons for wanting or, or, or needing to, to own one versus the other. For example, what type of strategy you're looking for? If you're looking for some uh, actively managed strategy, really hyper-focused on uh, someone trying to pick stocks in, let's just go back to the large cap industrial sector, for example, you're almost certainly not going to find that in ETF flavor because, again, like I said, ETFs are vast majority and predominantly passive uh, index-based, index-replicating strategies. There's not many active ETFs. So if you want an actively managed strategy, um, you're, you're most likely going to have to find it in mutual fund flavor as opposed to ETF because it probably doesn't exist in ETF. Versus if you want a passive strategy, like, for example, you just want to invest in a fund that uh, seeks to replicate the S&P 500, well, you can do it either way. You can buy it in mutual fund form or in ETF form. Which one's better? Uh, it, it's kind of a toss-up. Um, they they will uh, either flavor will invest in the same underlying portfolio of stuff. The fees will likely be comparable. Uh, the the ultimate returns are, are going to be near on identical. So the difference is really like how much uh, access to liquidity do you want? If and when you want to buy and sell this fund, are you willing to buy and sell it? only once a day at the day's closing at asset value? If so, then go with the mutual fund flavor. Or if you want the ability to buy and sell it intraday uh, at whatever the price may be at the time, subject to bid-ask spread, then you probably want to go ETF flavor. So it really all depends. Neither is necessarily better or worse. From a tax management perspective, for these passive-based funds, that they'll likely have uh, similar, if not identical, uh, tax characteristics from from perspective of you know capital gain distributions and dividends and stuff like that. So, uh, not to say it doesn't matter, but if you're owning it in a in a regular taxable brokerage account, it's probably a toss up. If anything, go with the ETF because to the extent there 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 might be capital gain distributions in the mutual fund, there, there likely might not be in the ETF. So you can at least save yourself a little bit of a tax headache there. But otherwise, it's kind of a toss up. Another thing to consider, um, I already sort of touched on this, what, what account type are you going to hold these funds in? Is it going to be a regular taxable brokerage account? If so, generally lead towards ETFs. Uh, again, if, if the strategy you want is is in e offered ETF labor, if it's not, you're kind of forced to have to use a mutual fund. Um, but if you're going to own it in a regular brokerage account, you know all else equal, lean towards ETFs. If you're going to own it in a qualified account, like an IRA, Roth IRA, or health savings account, uh, the the you know the, the tax headacheness of capital gain distributions and dividends is, is a non-issue, so don't let that um, drive your decision making if uh, you're going to own it in a, in a qualified account. Um, I already sort of touched on this as well, but well, actually, actually, I guess I didn't. 
uh, when you, do you want to be able to buy and sell in exact dollar amounts? Yes or no. So with mutual funds, one of the benefits is you can invest an exact amount. So you can go to Vanguard and say, hey, I want to buy exactly $10,000 of this fund. They will give you $10,000 worth. That's going to likely equate to some oddball amount of shares, you know, like 563.7258 shares. But you can invest to the penny uh, or maybe to the dollar with mutual funds. With ETFs, you generally can't. Uh, some brokers do let you buy fractional shares, like I said, but most don't. You're going to have to buy whole shares. So if you're buying shares of an S&P 500 fund and it trades for 400 bucks a share, you're only going to be able to buy shares in whole quantities. So you're not going to be able to buy like $1,000 exactly. You're going you're gonna to be able to buy $800 worth or $1,200 worth or you know whatever whatever the different increments of, uh, of share price are. So depending how much you're concerned about being able to invest to the dollar versus if you're just okay investing by the share, knowing that the, the resultant dollar amount may be you know, not exact, then that can help your decision. If you need to invest to the dollar, then you're going to be, you know, you're likely going to want mutual funds. If you're okay investing, you know, to a rough amount, uh, being limited to buying, buying and selling whole shares, then, uh, then, you know, ETF routes okay for you. Um, another thing, uh, are you okay when you do eventually sell, are you okay not having as much control over being able to tightly manage the realized gains or losses? What do I mean by this? I'll give you a quick example. So remember I said mutual funds, when you sell them or buy them, they only get transacted at that day's closing net asset value. Well, if you put in an order at 10 a.m. to sell a mutual fund, you don't know what its price is going to be that day, right? You know, maybe the market rallies by the end of the day and goes up 1%, 2% or down 1%, 2%. That could really mess stuff up. If you're trying to die, you're trying to do like diligent tax planning, tax management, and you're trying to dial into an, like an exact amount of, uh, of a uh, realized gain or loss on this particular position, this can be dicey if you're doing the mutual funds. Because again, you don't know how the, how the fund's gonna fluctuate in value throughout the day. Even if you put the trade in late in the day, if it's a fund that owns, let's just say 50 different individual stocks, you don't know what that fund's gonna close at. You know, even if it is 10 minutes before the close of the market, unless you know the price of all those 50 individual stocks and how much each stock accounts for the fund as a whole, you're not going to be able to guesstimate what what the price is going to be. I mean, you can probably guesstimate within a percent or two, but you know, you're not going to be able to nail down really close what the total uh, gain or loss is going to be because you don't know what the net asset value is going to be. Therefore, you don't know exactly how many shares are going to be bought or sold when you get this transaction executed. Whereas with ETFs, since you can buy or sell them intraday at intraday prices, you can pull up your brokerage screen. You can look at, okay, this, this fund's trading at $103.22 right now. You can put in your order and know that your trade is going to get executed at something really close to that $103 and however many cents I just said. So if you're trying to um, really dial in on exactly how much you want to buy or sell, or sell in this example, and exactly how much you want to sell because you're trying to back into a exact amount of, of realized gain or loss you're trying to hit, you have much better control over doing that with ETFs than you do mutual funds. The example I, I, I alluded to was I work with someone where there was a large uh, position, you know, a few hundred thousand dollar position in, in, in a mutual fund and uh, client, you know, person wanted to get out of it, but we we're trying to do so. We, we wanted to only sell enough to realize like $30,000 or whatever it was. I don't remember $30,000 and realize gain on that position. So we knew the price at which the client had bought that, that, um, that mutual fund, you know, that's history. We already know that with certainty. We don't yet know what the net asset value was going to be that day on the day we put the sale order in. 
yet I was trying to dial into exactly, you know, $30,000 of realized gain. So if I knew with certainty what the, what the net asset value is going to be, it'd be easy. I, I'd know exactly how many shares the mutual fund to sell that day. Thankfully, I was able to manually kind of figure out an intraday price movement because it was a, uh, it was a Vanguard mutual fund and it was a, it was a target date fund where the way these target date funds work is uh, it's, it's a collection of underlying stock and bond investments where you select a date based on your anticipated date of retirement. And as that date gets closer, the fund will automatically rebalance its allocation of stocks or bonds to sort of dial down the risk and dial down the stock exposure as your retirement gets closer. But with, with Vanguard, their uh, target date mutual funds ultimately really do nothing else than invest in other uh, Vanguard funds. And um, the Vanguard has mutual fund and ETF offerings of a lot of the same underlying portfolios. So what I was able to do was find the allocation of for this particular target date fund, which you know five or six different underlying Vanguard index mutual funds doesn't invest in. I was able to use the ETF versions of those funds. I was able to model uh, you know their intraday prices as it moved throughout the day and what their weights are in the total fund. So I was able to come up with a really good guesstimation of based on where these ETF prices are, uh, you know, the, the, the ETFs that make up this, this target date fund, I was able to figure out as the trading day was coming to a close, what do I think the net asset value of this mutual fund is going to be at the close of today? So it ultimately worked out really well this exercise, but um, this is much harder to do if you were, like I said, in an actively managed fund where it's 50 individual stocks where you need to find out the, uh, the weighting of each stock and, you know, the, the intraday price of each stock. That's the only real way to try to come up with a, with a reasonably close estimate of net asset value for the day. So I'll, I'll stop with that. That's pretty technical. But point is, uh, if you're trying to do diligent tax management with, with really dialing in specific amounts of capital gains or losses when you sell something, much easier to do with ETFs than it is uh, mutual funds. So that's another consideration. Um, one other random comment. I often see and hear and read people conflate a few terms here. Someone will will say, um, you know, uh, mutual funds are better than index funds or index funds are better than mutual funds. No, uh, <laughs> there, there's two broad types of funds. There's mutual funds and ETFs, as, as you learned today. Index fund isn't something separate. Index fund is simply the type of strategy employed by either of those funds. So remember I said active versus passive. Passive are index funds. Passive just means the fund, whether it's a mutual fund or ETF form, the fund strategy is simply to try to invest in things where those things replicate uh, the holdings of some, or the um, constituents of some index like the S&P 500. So you can have an index fund that's a mutual fund or an index fund that's an ETF. Make sense? I saw a post on Facebook where someone was saying, you know, trying to do some, some janky comparison between mutual funds and index funds. I was like, man, this isn't right. You don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, just, uh, just keep that in mind. Um, I think that's it. That's all I want to talk about today for mutual funds and ETFs. Hopefully you found this helpful. Be sure to come back next week for part five. I don't yet know what it's going to be. I will figure it out before then. There's still definitely a couple more episodes of things worth of stuff I want to talk about, maybe even three more, but we shall see. Um, if you do, as always, if you do like this podcast, please be sure to uh, give it a like, a thumbs up, ideally a nice rosy, uh, fantastically written review on, on Apple Podcasts or something. That would be greatly appreciated. And if you haven't already, definitely check out retirementplanningeducation.com, which is now the uh, single source for the uh, retirement planning education brand of stuff. 
which is you can find this podcast here. You can find a direct feed and link to my YouTube channel uh, by the name Retirement Planning. Uh, what is it? Retirement Planning Education. There's a new newsletter where I just started last month, so it's going to be slowly building it out. But there will be a new blog, if you will, uh, on that site each month. And there's a whole host of delicious, juicy, fantastical, uh, informative, educational, freely downloadable handouts and guides and charts and references. So definitely check that all out. Again, retirementplanningeducation.com. And that is it. Thank you as always for listening. Be sure to check back next week for part five of my multi-part series on intro to investing. I still don't know what it's going to be about yet, but I'm guaranteed it's going to be good. All right, that's it. Thank you. Take care. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.